Well, today is the first Sunday of the month, and it's Family Worship Sunday, and it's the Sunday that we do communion. And so I'm going to ask so we don't uh, disrupt later on during the service. If you did not receive communion, the elements, when you came in, raise your hand nice and high and keep it up until one of the deacons, Seth, if you could grab those, uh, and Mark, and, and if you could pass those out to anyone who did not get those. I think we did a pretty good job, but there's a few up here that, uh, that don't have them. I think uh, oftentimes those of us who grew up in certain traditions where communion wasn't really, I guess, valued as much as other traditions, that sometimes we can uh, dismiss it and treat it like it's not that significant, not that big a deal. And I want us today to really make our, the Lord's Supper really be the application of our sermon. Uh, I really want this to be a time where we truly reflect on what God is teaching us through his word, and so I don't want to have a bunch of movement during that time at the end, and so uh, keep your hand up. Anybody else uh, did not get that? Everybody, everybody good? All right, excellent. Tony mentioned a few, last week, last few weeks actually, he's starting a, a, a financial class. It's going to be meeting over here starting next week for four weeks in this bottom classroom, and it's a good opportunity to kind of talk about finances, and God is over everything. And you've seen that email, hopefully you've read that, and that's, this is not about the announcement, but it's more about the logo, if you can put it up on the screen. The logo for that class is, uh, is an iceberg, and on an iceberg, if, when you look at the iceberg, you see that it's a pretty gigantic thing, but most of you probably are aware of this, that only 10% of the iceberg is shown above the water, and there's about 90% of it that's underneath the water. So when you look at it, all you're seeing is just a very small fraction of what truly exists there. And as I was thinking about this financial class, and then I heard someone over the weekend kind of use the iceberg for an illustration, it just really reminded me of how that many of us as Christians, how we live our lives. That we live our lives with about 10% of ourselves visible to people, at least to our church family, our church people, and then about 90% of it or so oftentimes goes unrevealed, and we kind of keep that part hidden about ourselves, and we don't let people in on that. And so to kind of put some meat to that, that, that statement, our emotional lives, our financial struggles, habits that we've tried to get the best of them, and they've gotten the best of us for years, our marriages that are in turmoil and we struggle, but yet we never reach out for help, and probably the one that really hits us most on this area is if we really are true about what we fantasize and what we dream about, daydream about, really reveals a lot of what's in our hearts. What do we do in our minds when we don't have anything else to do? What are we thinking about? And that really reveals to me how far short I fall of truly following Christ and allowing his supremacy to really be the main thing in my life. Because a lot of the times my thoughts are about things that really don't have anything to do with God and his kingdom. And so we can know all the right things to say. We can fit in well on a Sunday morning by knowing the terminology to use. But many times we just will not allow Christ to have the supremacy over our lives, every area of our life. And so the supremacy of Jesus, I'm going to use this statement several times today, is easy to state, is easy to say, but it's really, truly not so easy to accept into our lives. And so I hope today as we look at John chapter 3, 
verse 31 through 36, that the Holy Spirit will identify some areas of your life that are not given over to Jesus, that you're unwilling to admit to him that he lacks the supremacy in that area, that you've been owning that, that's your area, and he's really not to keep put his hands on that area of your life, and that you will admit that humbly and by grace just receive what he has for you today. And so in John 3, we're going to look at the end of this chapter, and we're going to see three truths, I think, that will help us from living this iceberg kind of life. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I thank you for your word that gives us truth. I must admit there's many times I've read over this chapter in Scripture and never noticed the significance of these powerful verses, God. And I pray today as we just sit and let your spirit work through your word that it will truly change our heart. And God, we will be real and specific with you about areas of our life where we need to open up to your power and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is Family Worship Sunday. I want to do a little test for our kids here to get some participation, all right? So there's going to be a picture of this long-haired, hippie-looking dude on the screen, all right? If you're below fifth grade, I want you to raise your hand without mom telling you who that is, right? And, and, and tell me what band this guy um, play, was in. What band, all right, was, was this guy in? All right, I want to see. If you know the answer, raise your hand. I won't call on you. If you know the no, kids, all right, fifth and below. All right, fifth and below, raise your hand. All right, if you don't have any clue what band he was in, raise your hand. Oh, come on, raise your All right, all right, the vast majority. All right, I saw like two hands go up, what band he was in. Most of the hands had no clue what band this guy was in, all right? So you probably heard the term the Beatles, right? Well, John Lennon, in 1966, he said this famous quote. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. John said, we're bigger than Jesus. Well, sorry, John. It's not the case, right? Here we are quite a few years later. It's not the case. It's not going to be the case. Because nobody's ever going to be bigger than Jesus. And even in a country, even in a place where his truth might be suppressed and his people might be suppressed, you're still not going to topple over his supremacy, his greatness. Why? Because what First 31 says right off the top, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from above is above all. Jesus, John has made this point again and again in this chapter, amazing chapter. Jesus, is a, he ain't from around here, right? He, he's supreme. 
He is reality. He's from the beginning. He was with God. He came to earth. And John has said multiple times in various ways that Jesus is God. And he's great. And he's way bigger than the Beatles could ever even imagine or dream about being. Yet he was born in a place called Bethlehem. People who were reading this verse, these verses may have even known his mother, Mary. He was a carpenter from a town called Nazareth. Yet, verse 31, John makes it clear, he who comes from above is above all. That God is supreme. God is great. And he revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And next, he, and there's much debate, let me just say, there's much debate on whether the words right here from 30, 31 through 36 are John the Baptist continuing the conversation we had last week in the text, whether it's John's continuing to talk, or whether this is John the Apostle giving commentary on the truths here. So some of your Bible versions may have quotes around what's being said, others don't, because it's, it, nobody agrees on this. It doesn't matter. The point is still clear. Whether it's John the Baptist or John the Apostle, Jesus is supreme. And if it's John the Baptist, it makes perfect sense because John has been talking about Jesus must increase, I'm going to decrease. And so he says in this verse 31, he says, He who is of the earth, that's John, both Johns, that's Peter, that's all the apostles, that's the most godly person who's ever lived in, in, on this earth besides Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So even the most godly person is limited at some point, and compared to Jesus, they don't even, they're not even in the same ballpark. And so John is making the case of Jesus' supremacy, and he's showing that even the greatest humans are from the earth, or they belong to the earth, and so they have a limited earthly perspective. Now, I say that not as a criticism because we're all in the same boat there. We're all earthly. We're all from the earth, unlike Jesus. And so while we have a dual identity in Christ, we're citizens of heaven, we also remain citizens of this world. And the only hope we have to hear words that aren't in some way slanted, biased, or tainted, are the fact that we go to Scripture, go to the Word of Christ, go to the Gospels, go to this Bible, and we see what God says on the subject and on the matter. But so many, so many times I find us running to other resources and really allowing those things to be more important than God's Word. Now, there's some great human teachers there's some great expositors, there's some great commentaries about Scripture, but nothing compares to Scripture itself. And I say that, and most of you would agree with that, but here's the sticking point, here's the iceberg moment, all right? How much time do you invest in the Word? Because again, the supremacy of Jesus is easy to state, but not so easy to accept. And so we're earthly. We have to understand that. We have to embrace that. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, another incredibly popular chapter, the love chapter, he writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, 
But then, in eternity, we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul's been writing in this passage, in this section about spiritual gifts, and he's saying that these gifts only give a glimpse of what we can know about God. They reveal about God, for sure, but they only give us a, a, a glimpse. And then Paul says in Romans, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Jesus obviously knew the mind of God. He knew the thoughts of God, and so he spoke the very words of God. Skip down to verse 34 in the text, and we'll come back and grab the other verses in a second. Continues this thought, he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit, God gives him the Spirit, without measure. And so Jesus spoke the very words of God. He spoke exactly what God wanted him to say. If Jesus is everything and he said and, and he said he was everything, and if we fully believe he's everything, and we fully believe his words are true, then it's got to change our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors. But the problem is because we're earthly, we're of earth, we think defaultly by oftentimes the earthly way of thinking, even on our best day, it's a lot like what John Piper says, one of the greatest evidences of the fall is that we're so easily bored with such glorious realities and truths. We are. We are. We're, we're bored with the great realities and truth that we have. And it's easy for me, just like you, if we're honest, if we're to get below the surface here, that many times we open the word and we go through the motions and the reality is it doesn't do anything to really change our lives because we're unwilling to open our lives. We're unwilling to open our head and our heart and our hands to the truth of Scripture. And so the supremacy of Jesus, it's easy to state, it's not so easy to accept, is it? But Jesus gave us an ex a great example to follow, and I believe that so much of what Jesus did when it came to hearing from God and then responding to God had a great deal to do with wanting to tell us, hey, I need you to live in the way that you, you're wired as a human being, limited, so to speak, compared to him, by following his example. John 5, 19. We're going to see this in a few weeks. Let me read it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then in chapter 12, Jesus reiterates this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus said, I'm waiting to hear what the Father says before I speak. I'm waiting to see what God wants me to do before I do it. Now, here's one of these great realities that we know in our minds that we need to hear again and again because we live in a culture, we live in a day where people are graduating from high school, going off to secular university colleges, and they're being pushed against their Christianity by professors who can do a very great articulate job of bringing up things that maybe you never thought about before and begin to make people doubt their faith and not trust their faith because there's been very little intellectually given to them in order for them to stand in their faith. 
And so I'm going to reiterate a lot of what we've talked about in these next few points here. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is God. Jesus wasn't like a sub-God or the face of God only during the time he was on earth, and now we have God, the Holy Spirit, what's called modalism. We have Jesus is God, one of the members of the Holy Trinity. The Father and the Son have different functions and roles. We see this clearly in this verse where Jesus says, I'm only doing what you say to do, God. I'm only doing the things and saying the things that you want me to do. They have different functions and different roles, but the Son is subject to the Father in everything that he does, yet this does not deny their fundamental equality with one another. So be careful, younger people here, who aren't so grounded in your faith. You can hear wise and convincing arguments that will try to make you downsize Jesus and emphasize his humanity over his deity, and you'll walk away with a false gospel, a false truth, and once you're head down that path, then you begin to justify anything and everything. And so hold to the truth, the orthodox truths of Scripture, which is Jesus is God. And John has stated that clearly again and again and again. And Jesus had the unique ability, unlike us, to always see God's providential activities in the events of everyday life, activities that are ordinarily invisible to us as humans. Jesus could see what God was doing. He sees that God's working in that person, that God's working in that situation. And Jesus always stepped into it perfectly, and he always perfectly said the right thing. We don't always do that, but it's not an excuse not to attempt to live like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see in a minute. So can we just agree right now? It's difficult. It's difficult to follow Jesus' example in this area. It's difficult to put our agendas aside, our biases aside, and live for his glory alone. And so here's the first point I really want you to remember from this passage. Allow Jesus' words to be your words, and your words to be words from God. Allow Jesus' words to be your words, and your words to be words from God. I'll more fully explain that as we go along. But we want to allow Jesus to influence the words we speak in the ordinary, everyday flow of life. That's the goal. One of my favorite verses, we're in John 3. Everybody knows John 3, 16. All right, you can, you can remember this, all right? Colossians 3.16. You can just keep going back to this again and again and again. 3.16. Just Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're to let God's word fill us up. The word of Christ, the gospel, to be so heavy, pressing down into our minds, into our hearts, that it more and more it becomes just natural to speak the things of God. And our words then will point people to the supremacy of God, whether they reject it or don't reject it, it's, it's not consequential. It's what we do with it. And as we read and study and meditate upon his word, then he can take us as earthly people who belong to the earth, as John says, and we speak in an earthly way. We can't separate ourselves from just the world that we live in, the way that things are in the world, but we live as citizens of heaven even as we live out life in a very mundane way on this earth. And so as Jesus' followers, we're going to feel heaven and our identity in Christ crushing down on us at points 
on this earthly identity. There's going to be tension there. That's a good thing. There should be tension. And we'll spend our lives, if we're truly open to the Holy Spirit, scrutinizing how we prioritize our values in light of our commitment to follow Jesus. It's a good thing. We're going to say, is that a wise use of my time? Is that a wise use of my money? Is that a wise use of what you've given to me, God? And when we do this, our heavenly values will sometimes affirm our earthly values. Sometimes we'll need to modify it. And sometimes we'll need to completely just reject those earthly ways of living. And so this happens a lot to you, whether you're aware of it or not, that, that you deal with this tension. Is this a good thing, God? And we know that the black and white issues sometimes are very easy to deal with. I remember as a kid, I was probably eight or nine, and my dad had just had it with the shows on TV. And one night we were watching, and, 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 and something came on on a show, and it was, you know, it was supposed to be a good family-friendly show. And it made him so mad that he just looked over at my mom and said, we're getting rid of the TV. We're just getting rid of them. And they literally got rid of all our TVs out of our house until I think I was probably uh, a senior in high school. And at, at that point, they just did not want the influence to be so great on us as kids. And at first, we were seriously bummed out about this, all right? All right, for younger people, this was before internet. This was before phones, all right? We didn't have YouTube. Oh, I'm, I'm okay with you know, pulling the plug because we can go to YouTube. We didn't have anything like that, all right? We, we got a ping pong table. And, and that was our entertainment, but it was great. It, it was fun. I became a pretty good tennis, table tennis player. But it, it, my dad realized that our values did not align, and so he made a decision. doesn't mean that's a decision everybody needs to make, but it was a decision he made. And there's decisions, there's choices we have to make because we understand that the earthly, we can reject this earthly way of doing life because we can give president to the kingdom, value to the kingdom in this area instead. And it's hard, and it, and it hurts, and it crushes. And we think to ourselves, is it worth it? All right, or I can, I can redeem that. And so we make excuses a lot of times for the things that God wants us to do as he reveals the truth in his word. And so our words reveal what we value, and our words should be the words of Christ. And then verse 31 those who belong to the earth, again, speak in an earthly way. How do we change the way that we speak? How do we change the things that we say? Well, we know it, it has to start here in our hearts. I read a devotion book by Tim Keller often. It's a devotion in the Psalms, and, and Keller writes this. It was really good. It says, it's going to be on the screen, We must hide the Word of God in our hearts through closely reading and meditating upon it. We ought to work the truths of Scripture into our affections until they shape our loves, hopes, and imagination. Jesus was the preeminent example of this. And here's the part that got me. In his darkest moments, when he was being forsaken, betrayed, and killed, he quoted Scripture. At the moments where most of us would be thinking, I got to endure this pain, or this is ridiculous. Why am I being put on this cross? Jesus was quoting Scripture. And so I don't know about you, but real honestly, if, if I'm hammering a nail and hit my thumb with a hammer, all right, I'm not quoting Scripture most of the time. Are you, right? True? Jesus, he was getting nails put into his hands and feet, and he was quoting Scripture. That's the example we want to follow. 
And not only was he quoting Scripture, the Scripture he was quoting, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. How amazing is that? The Scripture I'd be quoting is, God, I don't know where this is found, but God, get me out of this, right? Where is that at in Scripture? But that's not what Jesus was quoting. And so we see in verse 34 that Jesus was able to utter the very words of God, verse, the end of verse 34, for he, God, gives the Spirit to him, to Jesus, without measure. So John's saying Jesus received the, the Holy Spirit in basically in an unlimited dose, all right? He was God in the flesh, and so he was to the full measure able to be led by the Spirit and because he's God. Clearly, we cannot be led by the Spirit to the degree that Jesus was led. Again, not an excuse because we have the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, living within you. So I don't care if you're 14, 44, or 84. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And as you saturate yourself with Scripture, and as you pray Scripture, and as you memorize Scripture, the Holy Spirit uses these truths in your life to help you as you navigate living on earth in an earthly way that you can live for a heavenly kingdom. I think the problem, practically, is many times we are looking for some kind of word from God over the word of God. All right? We're looking for a word from God over the word of God. And oftentimes we put a bigger emphasis and priority on the things that we feel or think in a moment than we do on God's revealed word and his truth. Let me give you an example. This morning, I am in my office. It's early. I'm putting some last-minute changes into my sermon, doing a few things. And all of a sudden, an email pops up, and it gives a little preview, and it says, God is supreme. All right? It's pretty cool that today's sermon is all about the supremacy of God. And this email where I get like once a week from this guy comes randomly days, not necessarily Sunday. And the topic was God is supreme. Anybody else on that uh, Andy Nacelli uh, list? You see that? And, and, and I get that. And, and, and clearly, that's something God is doing. It didn't happen by accident. But so many times we base like the things that we want to brag about being more of our experiences than we do with God's revealed truth. And the danger is with experiences, they're so, they can so mislead you and misguide you. And what might seem like a revelation at the moment from God to a pretty cool thing, right? At another point could be an email that was totally not of God, but you could still read into it and think that God is speaking to you. And so the second thing I want to point out from this passage, I think for Christians, all of us in here need to remember, we need to allow Jesus and his experiences to interpret our experiences. We need to allow Jesus and his experiences to interpret our experiences. Look at verse 32. It says, He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. All right? His experience. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And look at the outcome, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus was with the Father. He had firsthand knowledge of the truth of God. He came from God. He was God. He spoke for God. He talked for God. And that is what I want to run my experiences through 
him, not what I feel or think at the moment. You see, if I do it based on what I feel or think at the moment, when Jesus, it says, was rejected, no one receives his testimony. If I'm rejected or I don't feel good or if something happens, it seems like, you know, this can't be a good thing from God. And I begin to question God and his love for me and question my experiences or my rejection I'm getting or the persecution I'm getting. All of a sudden, I'm interpreting it through my lens rather than Jesus's lens. And so it's critical for us to base our faith in Jesus on who he is and not just what he can do for us. Base it upon who Jesus is, not just the stuff that he does for us. Has he done a great deal for us? More than we can imagine. But sometimes we can move over into the driver's seat and Jesus becomes the guy who just is supposed to make our life easier and better and more comfortable. And when things don't go the way that we plan for them to go, or the bottom falls out of our company, or the bank doesn't come through with the loan, or the crops don't really produce the way that we hope them to do, we begin to question the goodness and the love of Jesus. His word must trump our experiences. His truth must take precedent over what we feel and think in the moment. So will there be moments, absolutely, where God does something, if it's just like, that, God, that seems like that you're working in a very special way there. But I'm not going to let my emotion or experience hijack the truth of Jesus. And I hope that makes sense to you. I'm not going to come in here and spend 30 minutes talking about how God did this amazing thing by sending me this email this morning. Well, it could be a pretty amazing thing. It was kind of encouraging to me. It's not the point. The point is Jesus is supreme whether I got the email or not. Do you, get, do you get it with your life? Are you connecting this with your life? How that sometimes we can put so much stock in the experiences, and your experiences are going to let you down. You're not Jesus. You're limited in your ability to determine circumstances around you and the truth of that matter. The only way that you can get close to that is through the lens of Scripture, through the Bible. And, and again, we can state the supremacy of Jesus so well, but we don't live it so well. And I make that point because so many of us ignore reading Scripture and spending time with God. We don't invest. And so what we say about God being supreme, we got that 10% looking good. Yes, He's supreme. He's great. He's mighty. But the 90% is that you pick up your Bible once or twice a week. If Jesus is supreme, it changes the way that you do life. It changes the way you interpret experiences. And you won't have a shot of interpreting your experiences correctly in any way, shape, or form if you're not knowing his word in his word. Because as human beings, as earthly vessels or people, we're going to struggle even if we're in the word, even if we're John the Baptist and the most godly person on earth. We still are limited. Jesus is supreme. And so we hang on to his word, his truth. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, his experiences, but yet no one receives his testimony. They rejected Jesus, and they're going to reject us because we represent Jesus. But not everyone, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, 
that God is true. Whoever receives it, he sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, this is where just a cursory fly-through reading of this passage in your quiet time, if you're in a hurry and I'm just getting out of there, i got to do my stuff, you just read through this and you're like, that made no sense whatsoever. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I've studied and read John many times. The first time I read through this in, the, in a while, like, I, I was like, what is that talking about here? You know, what's, what's the meaning behind this? Well, there's some historical context that's important that gives you a little bit of understanding. And some of your modern translations kind of help you out with that, but it, you still miss a little bit of the imagery here. To set a seal was to press a unique emblem into hot wax. You've probably heard about this before. You take an emblem, oftentimes it was a ring with a certain insignia to, to identify a certain person, a certain family. It was put into hot wax and then like an envelope or an important document was sealed with that to show that it was authentic, that it was truly from the person who said they were sending it. And so when a person received a letter from you, if the seal on the envelope is unbroken and it's your seal then you know that what's inside came directly, they know what came, what's inside came directly from you. So through Jesus, we have heard the message of God, and we testify that this message is authentic, it's real, it's true. So he's saying most people rejected, but for those who received him, you authenticate this. Because you know it's true, it changes your life. It changes everything about you. Yes, you're still human. You struggle. You make mistakes. You, you sin. You wake up with a headache. But you still testify to the goodness and greatness and supremacy of God through Jesus Christ. That's what true believers do in their earthly, weak, dependable upon God way. That's what believers do. And so... The seal, it says, I believe, I testify to the truth. So, look here. If you're not, as a true believer, putting your seal on the truth and testifying to it, to your friends and relatives, then who's going to? Because you know, you believe, you have the Spirit. Put your seal, put your truth, confirm it, testify to it. It is true. My life testifies to the truth of God in Christ. Over the weekend, on Wednesday, we went to a conference on the weekend, but on the way there, on Wednesday, we went to a concert, and Harrison and I went to this, this concert. We were standing uh, near some people and started talking to this couple, and the couple said that they were from Tubelo, Mississippi. Anybody here from Tubelo, Mississippi? You've never been there, been through Mississippi quite a few times, but never been to Tubelo, Mississippi. And they were describing their town. They were proud of their town, describing their town. And, and, they, and then somewhere in the conversation, they said, uh, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And, and then they begin to tell me about all the beautiful churches that are in Tubelo. Oh, downtown Tubelo, we got the Baptist church, we got the Methodist church, we got the Presbyterian church, we got them all, and they're such beautiful buildings. And here, here's my comment to them. I said, I hope the people who come out of those buildings are as beautiful as the buildings are, or even more beautiful. And here's a response. The lady was like, oh, not so much. And they weren't believers, and they weren't in church. But the church has not, had not really been a good testimony to them, according to, I don't know their experiences, and I don't know their biases there. But we have an opportunity to testify 
And the more we allow that 90% to come up to the top, to be authentic and to be real, even in our struggles, even in the fact that we, our minds don't always do what we've asked them to do and our bodies don't always do what we ask them to do and so we struggle and we sin and those habits are not easy to break in our lives, but we're real about it. We're truthful about it. And in that, God's beauty shines through our humility. And I think that's what John the Baptist has just tried to get through this passage again and again. That there's only one Jesus. And John says, I'm not him. But John, you're great. And they're leaving you to go to Jesus. I'm going to decrease. He's going to increase. There's this humility. Back to verse 34. Put, put 35 in context since I skipped the order there. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hand. What another beautiful picture of our relationship. You see, especially as we get to the final verse in this, it's easy to allow fear and guilt to become our motivation for living for God. Legalism, what people will think about that 10% above the water. But we see in Jesus the perfect love relationship with the Father. That it wasn't just, I hear from God, check, now let me go do my thing. It was a total dependence upon his Father. It was a love relationship. That's our motivation to live the Christian life, is I'm loved by the Father. He loves me, and I love him imperfectly, in an earthly way. But I love him. And in this love relationship that we talk, he talks to me through his word. I talk to him through prayer. I pray his scriptures. And in that, I find the motivation to live for his glory, not my own. And the more I spend time with him, the more his reflection becomes my reflection in a very, very limited way. But nevertheless, in a way that's becoming more like Christ each and every day. The Word isn't an end in itself. The Word is about knowing God and loving God and then loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. Verse 35, don't confuse knowledge about Jesus with knowing Jesus. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's awesome news. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Look at the connection here. The connection is between Belief and disobedience. Belief, and then there's those who are the opposite of that, who do not obey. This is rejection. This is saying, Jesus, I say I believe in you. 
I have a lot of head knowledge about you, but I don't have that love relationship with you in any way, shape, or form. Because those who believe in the Son, the fruit of your life is more and more obedience to the Word of Scripture, more and more obedience to the commands of Scripture, more and more tension between, God, what do you want in this situation? As heaven crashes in on our earthly identities, as our kingdom identity crashes into our earthly identity. So obedience, obedience doesn't make you a better follower of Christ. It's the fruit of that love relationship. But you can't divorce obedience from belief. True belief in Jesus is always accompanied by obedience. You can't get away from that in Scripture. And so as we read the Word, as we know the Word, in our love relationship with Him, we find that motivation to do the Word, to live out the Word of Scripture. But look at the warning that He gives for those who don't know, that reject, but the wrath of God remains upon them or on them. Those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior by refusing to submit to His authority they ensure that God's wrath remains on them for the day of judgment. John had already stated this in a different way earlier in chapter 1. He restates it now with just a very difficult, tough word, God's wrath. It's not a wrath of reacting to a moment or a situation. It's God's settled displeasure, judgment upon sin because it's not who He is. It's not His character. And it remains They don't get God's wrath. It remains upon them. So, the application, head, heart, and hands, just all tied together in the communion today. Stay with me for a second. Jesus says in in chapter 6, he's going to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to be my disciples. People are like, huh? That sounds like cannibalism. Jesus says, many people, or John's commentary said, many people left Jesus at this time. Many of his disciples left him because it was too tough, too hard. And I think that's what the Lord's Supper, a partial illustration is, that you're embracing and reminding yourself again as a believer, embracing again the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is your life. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And in that, we find this amazing relationship because we decrease and He increases. So as we take the Lord's Supper, please don't take it half-hearted, lightly. Think about what we talked about today. And here's what I want you to focus on, the 90% under the water. Are you, con- are you content with it being that way? That there's just things that you refuse to allow Jesus, to, to his grace to speak to? You refuse to allow him to have lordship of the area of your life? Or you aren't seeking the fountains of grace through the church body for those areas that you're struggling with, that you think, I can deal with this myself. How's that working for you? You need the body of Christ to help you. Struggling in marriage, we've got marriage mentoring to help you. 
you're struggling with the sins of the flesh, jump in a fight club. You need community, we got women's Bible study. We got a Romans Bible study starting up in January. We have K groups today and Wednesday night. Opportunities for the body of Christ to be involved in your life and a much better environment to speak about that 90% and bring up that 90% than right here in this room. Because some of you will walk out of here and then everything's gone. Be in the Word. It's a love relationship. I'm going to pray for the Lord's Supper, and then we'll take that together.